As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's Monday. What's well, good night, people? And that means that it is a uh, new episode day here at Lost Origins. So uh, here we go. Here we go, people. <laughs> Hopefully uh, you are in a part of the world unaffected by various political unrest and viral spreads, and you are there ready to rock. Yeah. New awesome week. And I hope you got a Mai Tai in your hand right now, too. Mai Tai, Pina Colada, yeah. something with an umbrella, and you guys mm. are ready to rock. And one could argue you could put an umbrella in any alcoholic beverage. You could. Or non-alcoholic It'd beverage. be a little weird too, yeah. in a lot of them, but sure. I feel like the placement of that umbrella immediately makes everybody around you go, oh, okay, this person's oh, chilling. I like I your style. It's 7.15 a.m. Way to be. Yeah. You do you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good week, people. <laughs> Man, that almost got dark fast yeah i wish we could just put an umbrella in all of the things like yeah. in the great glass of life that we're drinking right now yeah yeah yeah. Well, hopefully not... lost origins can be that umbrella for you well let me this try week. Let, me, let me try to throw an umbrella into your glass real quick ck i know you like to read and uh i know you're a studious human um man i don't know the last time that you went to innertraditions.com to check out some rad stuff to read but if you're one of the folks out there who have not, that is really the website that you need to hop over to right now. Scoop up a book by our friend Robert Bouval or Andrew Collins or Sonia Grace. I mean, that list goes on and on. Supporter of the show from day one. And we have nothing but just love for our homies over at Inner Traditions. And Inner Traditions, guys. I, I know some of you might not have it as your homepage like Andrew and I do. Mm. Um, but if you can, sometime this week, 
If you haven't been in a while, they update it constantly. Yeah. New stuff all the time. Go check it out. Innertraditions.com. What I found really helpful too is uh, I started following them on social media a long time ago. And that is a great resource for me to just get updates on what's coming, the, the books I'm not even aware that I'm even on radar yet or whatnot, new authors that they signed. Um, and it's really, really rad to just see what they've got going on on the inside. I kind of like to peek behind the curtain a little bit. Get in there, guys. Kind of, kind of a creep. Like, get in there. We've got this cat named Rachel in our neighborhood. She's an outdoor cat, but she basically lives here. And she comes up on our deck probably about 13 times a day and just stares into our back door, our windows, and it's she has one she's crossed like, eye. She's too. like, really cool. are you on Interdictions buying me a book? That's not the voice I made for her, but it's kind of like, are that. you there? Hey, guys, you read that at Interdictions book? But that, that's just Rachel. But, um, Click the buy button. <laughs> the Go point I was making <laughs> is that uh, you know, it's cool to look behind the curtain, and they do a really good job of showing you like the humans behind that organization that just do what they do to get Curious, stuff in your hand. Like a cat outside your window <laughs> watching you. But for real people, holler at them. They love us. They love you. They love this entire genre. Holler at them. Innertraditions.com. Straight up. And uh, speaking of love, we got to throw one more love nugget over the fence. First, I think I've ever said love nugget on the show. Um, great Courses Plus, you guys. Uh, I, I know we've been talking about this for, God, almost a month and a half, two months now. But come on. Guys, this seriously is one of the coolest things that we've ever gotten to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, for real, you know, we we don't, I mean, I think people who've listened to the show quite a bit know that we don't shill for things that we uh, don't love. We look at each one of them and we say, hey, is this something that I would want in my life? And this one is one of those things. Great Courses Plus, you will never have enough time to learn all of the cool things that's mm-hmm. on here. This, this is probably one of the most, I don't know, gift that keeps on giving kind of things that you can give to yourself or somebody else. Yeah. And specifically this week, I know we're switching it up and we're looking at another course. We've looked at a couple in the past. Um, This week's is Big History, The Big Bang, Life on Earth, and the Rise of Humanity. Mm, We like those topics. Not a small topical area and something that I could imagine be really interesting to everybody who's listening to this right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were a fan of the way we kicked off season three, and I know several of you were because of the DMs that we got, the emails that we got and whatnot. Dr. Brian Keating, that guy, oh man. What a beast. Such a beast. Um, that is right up his alley. And if you enjoyed that conversation, I know that you'll enjoy this. Also, if you're a fan of Andrew Collins' work, I mean, you talk about the beginning of humanity, the origins of humanity and civilization, this speaks to that as well. So could not recommend it more. If you jump over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lostorigins, all one word, don't even need a coupon code. It's 2020. It's all about, you know, just dynamic permalinks and whatnot. Um, just, yeah, just jump in there and uh, you guys. Seriously. Three months, unlimited access, 30 bucks, 10 bucks a month. Just do it. Yeah. It's like the cheapest, most valuable thing you'll do this week. It's like giving yourself, it's like giving your brain a spa. Yeah. Do it. Do it. And if you don't like it, just hit us up and CK will refund your money. I will tell you, you know what, if you don't like it, there's probably some issue. And before I refund your money, I'll sit and speak with you about what you didn't like. And we'll pass it along the Great Courses Plus. And then and only then will I ask you to take the Baker's Choice, Dealer's Choice, and I'll assign you another course. And if you don't like that one, I will refund your money. I'd said it right here. I'm telling people. I'm so impressed right now. That was fire, dude. Wow. Let's do it. Whew. So what do we have going on, not just in our awesome world, uh, but on the show this week? So let me tell you, since season one, there's been a uh, list of names that lives on my computer uh, of people that I would 1000% love to pick the brain of. 
uh, that list was built before you came into this, uh, you know, into this, into the scene. And um, before CK era, the BCK mm, era. Ooh, that's fun. Uh, Brian Forrester, though, is a name that's been oh, on man. that list from day one. This guy, such a just cool, like charismatic guy. Just he's always been really interesting to me. His passion for uh, like just South America in general, and that's always been I had a weird magnet effect on me. Like Peru, Bolivia, all, all of the just cultures and ancient structures down there have always just and this guy my brain has my a big old brain and not yeah. because he is trying to do his greatest impression of some of the elongated skull headed people of South America that he studies the Paraguay mm-hmm. skulls but because he spent so much time studying megalithic works of South America yep this guy has written books about the subject more than 30 at this point no big deal more than 30 books mm-hmm. about yeah. this subject uh, recently completed his research endeavor at Gobekli Tepe, something you know that we know is a big interest to a lot of people out there. We've talked about it a lot on the show. Really multifaceted expert. Yeah, straight up. And the Paracas skulls is always has always been a, a topic that I've really wanted us to rip through on the show. Such a weird but enigmatic and amazing uh, and just intriguing rabbit hole and, and just mystery in itself. And today we get to spend time picking the brain of the world's foremost expert on the skulls. I mean, this guy lives in Peru just so he can be there and, and spend this much time studying the things. And it's, it's wild pretty cool. Stuff. Yeah. So we're going to rip through that. Uh, definitely want to make sure we pick his brain on his uh, recent excavate or trip over to, to Gobekli Tepe, but then just lost ancient technologies in general. This guy, uh, well-versed in that topic as well. So love it. So psyched. Uh, let me get out the Skype call thing. Let's and get him on the horn. We'll go. Here we go. All right, Brian Forrester, good afternoon and welcome to Lost Origins. Holy hell, CK and I have been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. You are uh, one of the researchers and authors that we've really been just itching to get on the show and pick your brain. So thank you, Brian, for carving time for us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So this is the first time you've ever been on the show, uh, which is super exciting. And, you know, anytime we have a guest come on the show for the first time, we always like to set the stage with that history lesson, right? For the few individuals in our audience who maybe have not encountered your work in the wild, maybe they're not up to speed with your work on the Paracas skulls and, you know, all the things around the globe that you're exploring on the daily. Let's do a little history lesson, right? Who is Brian Forrester? What's your background? What's the main focus of your work? That no, that's a loaded question. Um, and like, what's just kind of like got you to this moment today? If you could walk us through that, that would be awesome. Okay. Well, I was born in the U.S., but uh, grew up in Canada, and I've uh, I've lived in both countries on and off. My fascination with ancient enigmas began when I was a child. Probably the Sphinx was the first ancient object that drew and the great pyramids drew my fascination and uh, over the course of time i've traveled to about a hundred countries and uh my major my my major focuses are basically the elongated skull phenomenon and also evidence of advanced ancient technology um, at different locations around the world and the the Paracas skulls, we are going to come back to that here in just a minute. I mean, that's uh, an enigma that I've been following for a long time, your work specifically. I'm really excited just to kind of get the current state of things. I know our audience is itching for it as well. Um, when I was preparing for you know today's conversation, when CK and I were sitting down trying to figure out, okay, 
you know, we got an hour with Brian. What the hell are we going to talk to him about? Because, I mean, your work is so expansive. And every time I felt like I had like finally tallied up all of the books that you have put out into the wild, I realized that there was this like whole other section of the Internet that I wasn't aware of. And it just continued to take me down another rabbit hole. So, like, just to clarify, Brian, how many books have you authored and published about ancient enigmas, um, you know, all of the work that, that you're focused on? 37. 37. Whew. That's intense. That's amazing. Well, we really appreciate just like the the commitment to exploring all of these questions and, and what you're doing for, you know, just the betterment of understanding what, what happened in our history. That's huge. So we appreciate that. So. Oh, my pleasure. All right. So let's kind of uh, set some expectations for today, right? So we are going to attempt to cover a ton of ground, right? Like I said, I know we only have a limited amount of time with you. We're going to try to squeeze as much in as we possibly can. So let's start with your time in South America, right? I know that you have spent years pouring over these elongated skulls. I'd love for you to hit us with an overview of the Paraca skulls, maybe for our audience members who you know, are not super familiar with that, uh, that ancient mystery, that enigma. Uh, maybe they haven't followed it super closely. So maybe just like the, the overview of that. And then once we get through that, maybe explain the recent DNA testing that was completed on the skulls and the Eurasia connection between those findings. Okay, sure. Well, growing up, I would occasionally see on TV, they would have depictions of these elongated skulls, usually ones found in South America. And so about uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I stumbled across this little museum in a little town called Paracas on the coast of Peru. Yeah. And there, inside there was a mummified human head that was larger than normal, very cone-shaped. And so I very ra uh, rapidly developed a relationship with the curator of the, of the museum, Senior Navarro. And um, over the course of time, I became his uh, assistant director. So we began the process, you know, I asked him all the questions I could about them. He gave me a standard history. But since I come from a, a medical scientific background, I wanted to start to get more evidence from a sci scientific basis on what I was looking at. And uh, so, yeah, that's been 10 or 12 years so far. And we're, you know, still studying them up to this day. And so recently there were some DNA tests that were completed on the skulls themselves. And you, you actually released a book about it as well. If you could just kind of walk us through what was this DNA testing? Uh, what was the focus of it? What was it that you were trying to, you know, confirm um, or disprove? And what was the outcome of it? What, what data did we acquire to get us any closer to understanding this, this ancient phenomena? Okay, well, up to now, we've, have, um, we've tested 19 of the Paracas skulls. And um, the first test that was done didn't show much uh, data whatsoever. But then we had a, a major study of 17 of them. And uh, so because these skulls are 2,000 to 3,000 years old, it's very difficult to get DNA from them because DNA degrades as soon as you die, more or less. So, so over, over the course of 2,000 to 3,000 years, it's very difficult to get data. But we were able to get the mitochondrial DNA, which is the, uh, the mother's side of the family, 
from let's see, 16, no, 15 of them. Um, only two of those 15 showed Native American heritage. Two of them, the DNA was, was too, uh, too degraded, but with the other ones, they all turned out to have one commonality, and that was the area around the Black Sea of Eurasia. And so when, when you guys see data like that, like, where does your mind go? Where does your gut go, Brian? Because there's so many different theories out there, right? I mean, like, if you, if you turn on History Channel and you see an episode of Ancient Aliens, they're going to have a very specific uh, theory that they're going to throw at you. Um, if you talk to, you know, an anthropologist, um, you know, or, or somebody that's going to be more on the academic side of it, they're going to have a, you know, a theory or a logical way of walking you through what you're looking at there. Based on the amount of time that you have invested in understanding what these skulls are and what it means for humanity, like what conclusions are, are you like starting to come to if you haven't arrived at one already? What path are you going down right now with this? Well, basically, I, I just look at what the scientific evidence is telling us, and then you have to go from there. So since only two of the skulls showed um, Native American maternal ancestry, automatically that tells you that these people came from somewhere else. And uh, because it's human DNA, you, you have to admit that these are not aliens. They have to be humans of some kind. Sure. So, so then when you look at the list of the different haplogroups that we encountered, which were six or seven, the commonality is a location around the Crimea area of the Black Sea. And then when you look up photographs of ancient skulls from that area, you find out that the largest skulls, elongated skulls in the world, are either located in Paracas on the coast of Peru or in the Crimea area of Eurasia. So that gives you... Uh, quite probable genetic connection. So, so from that, you have to say, well, they must have migrated from the Black Sea to come to the coast of Peru. Sure. And so, like, what's the mainstream level of acceptance? You know, anytime a new groundbreaking theory uh, or a piece of data is presented that kind of goes against you know, the, the norm, I suppose, or the accepted chronology of a certain epoch of history, especially one that's going to take um, the theory of isolationism and throw it into a, you know, melting pot of diffusionism. Um, like, what, what kind of acceptance have you, have you been able to experience as you've been presenting your findings in the wild? Well, from the academic community, there's been basically no response whatsoever. I, I did make... Um, YouTube videos about the major testing that we did, and they've been viewed two million times. Sure. So, um, unfortunately, also, <clears throat> what we did for that main study, what we had to do is we had to have a Peruvian archaeologist as the the leader of the team, which we were able to find. But it, it took us three years before we were able uh, to to be given permission to do the DNA testing, and then when presented the results. He simply stated that there must have been contamination, and that is not the case. Mm. So that's basically where we are. Um, but what's also important is the morphological or physical differences between the first of, of the Paracas skulls, which are the largest and most elongated, and uh, compare those with other humans who, who lived in the area. 
What do you mean by that? Can you walk me through that? Well, since I've been studying this for such a long time, there's only one cemetery, uh, which is located about half an hour from where I am, because I, I am in Paracas. And that is that one cemetery that uh, there's a, a section of only 20 acres where the largest elongated skulls in the world have been found. So those are what we call the natural shape or the original uh, people. Okay. And three characteristics that distinguish physically their difference from a, a normal human skull is there's no sagittal suture, which is the suture line that goes down uh, basically from your forehead backwards to the back of the skull. It simply doesn't exist. And we've had 30 to 40 foreign medical professionals look at these, and none of them can explain the lack of the suture. Mm. The, other, the other thing is there are two holes in the back of the skull, which are for blood and nerve flow. And the logic behind that would be that because of the elongation or elongated head, that that would be where um, blood and nerve flow would happen because of the, the larger, larger size. And then the other thing is the foramen magnum, which is where your vertebral column enters the bottom of your skull is one inch farther back than normal. And that has to be a genetic characteristic. Mm. So this is, so you, like you just said genetic characteristics. So this is not, uh, in your opinion, I just want to make sure I'm tracking you correctly, the elongated skull phenomena, it's not something that was being done to people in their in their infancy um, to to emulate a, a certain you know deity or to um, you know achieve a certain level of um, status or, or or whatever like this this is like an, an actual genetic anomaly is that cor a correct understanding of this? Yeah, that's right. And uh, the basic time process is that the original people were born with elongated heads, and then as they bred with the local population, um, so as to not wind up with uh, genetic diseases caused by inbreeding, then the normal traits of a human skull would gradually, over the course of generations, start to take over. That would make the skulls start to look more and more normal-looking, and that uh, that's when the process of the head binding of these noble people began, a way to distinguish their physical look from those of the common population. Okay, that makes a lot of sense then. Okay, have you, have you dug? I'm sure you have. I know that you've you've written several books, like on Egypt, for example, and even one on Akhenaten himself. So, like, you know, the the elongated skull phenomena is not one that's captive to to South America either. I mean, if you again, if we point back to Akhenaten, I mean, we see depictions of him in ancient high relief carvings that are displaying him with with this characteristic of, of, of his skull being elongated so like what's your what's your take on this being a global phenomenon and you know based on where you go with that like what do you think the the bigger implication is there is it just an ancient global genetic uh, component of humanity that has been you know bred out essentially or are we looking at ancient civilizations that were capable of, of diffusionism is it, is it a combination of those i just i really want to get your take on it because of how much time you've spent with these sure well the the only ones that as far as i know that have been genetically tested are the paracas ones and the only testing that has been done have uh, has been done by me through two laboratories in the u.s and canada so Akhenaten is portrayed with an elongated head, but since and and his daughters, but right. since his his mummy's never been found, 
So we, we can't automatically say, well, that is what he looked like. But what we can say is he's trying to depict something. And the same thing in the case of the Maya and um, uh, cultures in Melanesia and actually Stonehenge and Europe and Bulgaria and other locations like that is that the head binding was done in order to distinguish the no noble classes from the general population. So it's not necessarily a case that it all comes from one source, but as I said before, the largest elongated skulls in the, in the world are either found in the area of Crimea or Paracas in Peru. That's interesting. And just out of curiosity too, and I'm going super rogue here as far as like our show notes are concerned, I always find it really fascinating to find out like where does the passion come from? Right. Like the, the amount of content that I've, I've consumed, uh, from you or with you as a like focal point key player in the narrative, working on, you know, exploring your work specifically, it, it, it always just fascinates me to find out like, what's the passion that motivates you to continue to dig into this? Do you, do you have this, you know, underlying feeling that if we are able to parse what's actually happening here, maybe this KPI or, or this, uh, you know, epiphany for humanity becomes relevant or accessible, or maybe it unlocks the door to this ancient civilization that is lost long and forgotten, you, right? Like, I, I just, I'm just curious, like, what's, where, where does your passion stem from, Brian? Because it's very, very evident anytime you, you look at any of your you know, books, videos, all of it. Well, it's basically the realization that we've been lied to um, about about so many different things. With the elongated skulls, all of the academics or any any paper I've ever read, as regards them, it's always one hundred percent the result of head binding. But they've done no scientific or genetic medical testing to back that up. Whereas I have. And then when it comes to the ancient megalithic structures that we find in different places around the world, we see evidence of machine marks. We see that the oldest structures are the by far the most complicated. And then uh, over the course of time, the construction methods get worse. And that's not supposed to be the way it is. Right. Uh, so it's it's all this um, this basic ignoring of the facts and cover-up of, of the evidence or attempted cover-up that uh, basically pisses me off. Yeah, sure, and so, sure. And so I, that, that's why I, I like to expose it to as many people as I can because it's part of an awakening process that our history is far older and far more fascinating than what we've been taught. Right. I think that's like the most noble of quests too, right? Like we talk about on this show all the time about how, you know, it's all about just asking the questions, and asking the questions that maybe some people are either too uncomfortable to ask, they're afraid to ask, they feel like they can't ask for whatever reason, whether it's professional or, you know, what whatever the, the undertone is there. Um, but the world needs more Brian Forrester's out there asking the questions oh. and not being afraid to to go up against what, what the, the, the normal accepted status quo is, right? Yeah, and basically, I'm I'm not you know I don't feel anymore that I'm going up against anything. I'm I'm simply sure. expo exposing the the facts and the data, and if if academics choose to ignore it, then the general public is eating it up like hot dogs. You know they yeah pe pe people love the, the the realization 
that these ancient things can actually be explained. They don't have to be, um, you know, the most commonly said thing is, well, we'll just never know. It's like if, if, if you make a statement like that, then that means you're not looking. Right. Right. Well said. So, Brian, you recently completed your research venture out at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Um, let's dig into this a little bit and understand the effort and sort of start to focus on the undertaking that you did while you were out there. What were you setting out to investigate? Why was it important? And what have you been analyzing or uncovering since then? Well, we basically, basically what we did is we organized a tour of almost all of uh, the major sites in ancient Turkey and Gobek. Gobekli Tepe was, of course, on the list. Sure. And it's it's very difficult to get a handle on something if you don't see it physically in person. So the difference between a photograph and walking around the site is major. Oh, and, I can uh, imagine. And, and the fact that they seem to have shown that it's 11,500 years old, was built in, in two stages. The large uh, T-shaped pillars appear to have been done first and then much inferior work was done later. So by physically examining the site, I wasn't impressed by the, the actual workmanship because uh, again, my, my focus is on looking at ancient machining marks and things like that. And the Gobekli Tepe site, the work is relatively crude, but there, again, there's so many anomalies from the standard story that you're given when you're in the location. They say it was a a hunter-gatherer culture that did that. And I think there's no way that's possible because you had to have incredible organization to be able to cut the T-shaped blocks, which some estimates are they're, the big ones are 10 tons, some estimates are that they're 20 tons. The, the quarry is local, so it's not a question of, you know, they had to have advanced technology to move the stones from some distant site. Um, but it's just the, the sheer scale of it is um, well worth any anybody if you're in Turkey or visiting Turkey definitely go and see Gobekli Tepe it's um, also it, it's not uh, a one-of-a-kind I, I know you were going to ask me about another one of the locations and I saw a map when we were at Gobekli Tepe that they've mapped at least 10 if not 20 different ancient locations that have the t-shaped pillars so it's much more complicated than what we uh, been taught, and also only about 5% of the site has been excavated so far. Which is so crazy, too, right? Like, if we think about, you know, only 5% of it has been uncovered, like, you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, the amount of insight, data, and theories that has come out of Pillar 43 and Enclosure D alone, right? If we've been able to pull that much information off of that one megalith, like, I can only, I can't help but wonder, like, what else is waiting for us under under the dirt right oh yeah so just out of curiosity when you're at gobekli tepe because i again i can only imagine what standing there is like i mean i i look at pictures of this site all the time and to see it with your own eyeballs it, god it has to be sur surreal as hell i'm sure so w when you're there though what experience or um structure or moment like really really resonated with you like when you think about your time at gobekli tepe what's that the first thing that pops into your mind is like that that was what made the trip for me do you have anything like that uh yeah well the, again there's a lot of conflicting stories about it some say that it was buried on purpose some say that it's so ancient that it uh, more or less just filled in over time um it's the you know it's it's those sites in Turkey are unique uh, 
for these T-shaped pillars, as far as I can tell. They, they look like nothing compared to anything else I've seen in the world. So, um, And the the Turks have uh, adopted Gobekli Tepe as, as a very treasured ancient site. They built a giant roof over top of it. There's a visitor center. Quite a few people are, are visiting the site now. But I think there has to be a lot more research done. And why there hasn't been more major excavations, I, I really don't understand it. Um, you know, if, if they've only uncovered 5%, then why aren't they proceeding with, you know, relative haste at excavating the rest of it? I mean, you would think that there would be a high sense of urgency, like if we've got this thing right here within, you know, our fingertips, our grasp, all the things. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just people like you and I that are just super curious and we just want to go dig all the shit up right <laughs> right but uh, i mean and i i don't know has klaus schmidt been like at, at, since his passing away is there is there a new person at the helm there judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like running the show or is it kind of like all slowing down? Is that part of the the turmoil in, in the Middle East right now? Like what, what what did you hear when you were over there in Turkey? Oh well, ba yeah. Basically, he was the the head of the whole thing, and his his death uh, death was very unfortunate. Um, he yeah. was obviously passionate about it. Uh, he was the main the main man behind the whole thing. Um, so yeah, I, I they're doing some smaller excavations there, but nothing on the scale of the uncovering of of the Gobekli Tepe that we know of. And the reasoning behind that, I'm not sure. To excavate the other 95% would cost an absolute fortune. Maybe, maybe cost is the problem. Maybe uh, there's some politics behind it as well. Um, but you do see, you know, 10 miles from the site, you see billboard after billboard of their of the pride of the local people of of, uh, of this lost ancient heritage which they're trying to unravel. Oh wow. So, so it's, uh, yeah, it's one of those places you go to and go, hmm, okay, it's impressive. And there are lots of other uh, places that we also visited in, in Turkey, some of which I found actually to be more fascinating than Gobekli Tepe. Really? Walk us through a couple of those. What, are, what, what, what was fascinating to you, Brian? Well, there's, there's this one site close to the Mediterranean, which is called Titus's Tunnel. And it's a tunnel that was cut into... The limestone bedrock and it's almost a it's 0.88 miles long and uh, the ceiling is between 20 and 30 feet high and again the standard story is that it was done under a Roman called Titus and it was a, a water aqueduct system but there's no way it was done by hand I mean this is like walking through a giant cavern yeah I'm looking at pictures of this right now this is intense oh it's crazy Wow and is that is that like the the common concept consensus is that this thing was just hand chiseled with animal bone and, <laughs> and pieces of string or like what's what's the like the common mainstream acceptance as to how this thing was built or what? Well, s steel chisels would have existed during that time because we, we are talking the Roman time period. Sure, so sure. you know, say two hundred, three hundred A.D. But 
it would take thousands upon thousands of people to do this work. It's yeah. just, you know, it's it's simply insane. But our guide, uh, our guide was really good. He was a, a Turkish man, retired um, history and archaeology teacher. But you could see, I, I could just tell from spending time with him that he was completely programmed into the standard academic story. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I didn't bother saying, okay, how did they do it? Because there's no way he would have an explanation for it. But I saw it. Obviously, that there had been a Roman presence, but it's like many sites, ancient sites we find in the world. Sure, the Romans were there, or the dynastic Egyptians were there, or the Inca were there, but they found something and then altered the shape of it for the function that they wanted to, to have it do during that time. So, yeah, Titus's tunnel still uh, does move water through it, but it's only a little side channel that's uh, almost a mere trickle compared to the massive cavernous system, which is almost a mile long in the bedrock. Man, yeah, I, I just can't get over these pictures. Uh, it, it's it's so intense. Out of curiosity, Brian, I mean, you'd mentioned there were several sites that just like really got the got the noodle moving, got the gears going. Like, what what were a few like one of the other sites that really stood out to you? Well, another site is called Hattusha. And that was a, a Hittite empire. That was their, their capital. And say the name of it one more time for me. Hattusha. Hattusha. Okay, cool. It's actually spelled Hattusa, but they pronounce it Hattusha. Okay. And, and of course, again, you know, this is a, a Hittite site. We went and went, oh, okay. But uh, once again, we saw two different levels of construction. We saw people stacking stones on top of one another, which ain't, like anybody could do. But then we saw very tight-fitting polygonal stone work where the, where the stones originally would have fit together almost perfectly without mortar or clay or cement or anything like that. As well, we saw between 50 and 100 circular drill holes, uh, core drill holes in the stone, which could not have been modern because of the amount of weathering. It was always the same size drill, uh, drill bit. And so it's another site that is of, of uh, ancient megalithic nature, uh, created using advanced technology, then there was likely a, a cataclysm of some kind that destroyed it. And then somewhere in the region of 1500 BC, the Hittites discovered this ruined megalithic site and decided to make it their capital. Sure. Using much inferior technology. I can't help but look at these pictures, though, Brian, and immediately my brain goes to Sacsayhuaman. Right. Like it's oh, not, yeah. not apples to apples, obviously, but like there's some stones here. Like you talked about the poly polygonal stones, like these things are fitting together. It's it's almost eerie how much it reminds me of Sacsayhuaman, actually. That's that is crazy. Yeah. Well, we also saw, uh, saw like most of the site is limestone, but um, the, the center core and this is the common theme that you find at these ancient sites. The center core was actually made of granite, and the granite was not local. It had to be brought, um, I think, from Ephesus, which is somewhere in the region of 200 miles away, as far as I can remember. And we saw circular saw marks and also straight saw marks. And we're not talking modern tools. We're talking very weathered stone. So, again, the presence of uh, advanced technology from the distant past. Yeah, this is so cool. Okay, so let's let's go back to Gobekli Tepe real quick, Brian. I'm sorry to like jump all over the place. Like I said, I've just sure. 
I, my, my brain's going a mile a minute right now. <laughs> um, so in several conversations that we've had about Gobekli Tepe specifically, um, you know, we've we've been we've been seeing a lot of stock being invested into the zodiacal implications of the site and understanding a celestial mechanic like this. I mean, that's going to require some serious in-depth understanding of, you know, our place in the cosmos and, and all the things essentially. So when when you see this site in person, through the lens that you've developed over, you know, decades of, of doing this kind of investigative work, what does your research point to as the purpose of Gobekli Tepe? I know that's a loaded question, but I mean, have, have you started contemplating that and kind of identifying a path that makes the most sense to continue down? Yeah, well, I think it was, you know, everyone is calling it a ceremonial site and every, everybody calls, every, calls everything a ceremonial site, but then, you know, get down to the the finer points of what kind of ceremony are you talking about? Since it was originally constructed supposedly 11,500 years ago, which was just at the end of the massive series of global cataclysms that occurred, sure. um, it, I, I think it was definitely, it definitely had um, a solar, lunar, celestial function in terms of alignments. And I think it also tells us because it's so complicated and would have to have taken a large crew to build. There's no way that hunter-gatherers would have made it. It had to have been a settled society that had agriculture and, uh, you know, strong social development. So that point in itself, if it's true, pushes back the time of domestication to, 11, you know, 11,500 years ago and not the 6,000 years that in general were taught. So. Maybe on some level, that's why some academics don't really want to look at Gobekli Tepe because it, it shatters the historical record. And now that it has some radiocarbon evidence that its, uh, its origins began 11,500 years ago, that they just don't want to go there. The same thing <clears throat> as you brought up Sacsayhuaman in Peru, it's the same thing. You know, the, just the sense of scale was way beyond the capacity of a Bronze Age culture like the Inca. The Inca obviously found Sacsayhuaman and then they built structures at the same site, which they did anyway. Um, and so the again, these are the inconvenient truths which um, shows like this are wonderful to expose because you're not going to get the answers from academia anymore. You're going to get the answers from people going to these locations hopefully with some kind of scientific background uh, to some degree to be able to analyze, uh, you know, the data that, that we're able to get from being physically there. And so I think that that's probably a really good jumping off point then for, for my next question regarding your, your, your work that's focused on lost ancient technologies in general, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have written several books on this topic. Um, and those focus on many different ancient cultures separated by, you know, massive expansions uh, as it relates to distance, but then also sometimes as it relates to just, you know, years and epochs altogether. So when you refer to lost ancient technologies, Brian, almost like a, a blanket statement, if you will, what do you mean, right? I, I, I feel like, you know, one issue is the way that we currently as a society project our technology onto the ancients and we feel like, okay, well, if you don't have, you know, this approach to manufacturing or fabrication or you don't have an iPhone, you're dumber than I am, <laughs> right? But mm -hmm. in, in, my, in my mind, I think that's super dangerous because 
just because the technology standards that we currently have and subscribe to and we take for granted doesn't mean that there's not another trunk of you know technological advancement that maybe we're not privy to because we have not discovered how to harness a certain you know facet of uh, just the the universe essentially right so mm-hmm. i digress um, and i do that but you know i would just love your take in general on ancient technologies as a whole what do you mean when you say that statement? Um, just kind of walk us through that, set the stage for all the other questions I'm going to have for you. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> there are some that have a theory that there was one advanced ancient civilization that existed prior to, um, the, again, as I state, the great cataclysm that occurred. And there's mounting scientific evidence that this cataclysm series happened between 12,700 and 11,600 years ago, and Robert Schock is a a good proponent of that. So we're talking that these sites were constructed prior to the cataclysm, so that throws them back, you know, 12 to 13,000 years ago. And um, again, most think that it was one, you know, so-called Atlantean civilization or alien civilization or something like that, that that did all the work all around the world. But when you look at the actual surfaces and construction techniques, that doesn't really mount up because what we see in Egypt is everything which is pre-dynastic, which include the Great Pyramids, etc. Um, we see machine marks, like we see saw marks, we see drill marks, uh, circular saws, straight saws. We see penetration rates of these tools being more efficient than what we have in, in the 21st century. But then when we go to Peru, that's where we have polygonal construction, which simply means every stone is a different shape, uh, shape and size, such as Sacsayhuaman. And the stones originally fitted together and to some degree still fit together, together with such precision that you can't fit a human hair in the join. Um, so that looks more like a, like a molded or, or the... Um, the alteration of the actual fabric of the stone material, like being able to change its molecular structure temporarily. So that I think that is far more advanced than what we see in Egypt. In Egypt, we see scale, like the Great Pyramid, the 100-ton boxes in the Serapium, uh, things of that nature. But in, in Peru, uh, the scale is not quite as big, except at places like Sacsayhuaman. But we see that somehow the... Again, the molecular nature of the stone seems to have been altered, and that is something that is way out of the box. And you, you need someone who's a very open-minded engineer to go with you to, uh, to, to look at them and hear, hear what their theories are. And none of the um, engineers or stonemasons that we've taken to Peru have been able to explain how the work was done. So they have to go into uh, the theoretical side of how it would be even possible to do this kind of work. And that automatically throws the Inca out as being the creators of the works. The Inca found the sites and 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 built at the sites. When that question gets asked about like, let's say Machu Picchu, for example, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like their response is gonna be, oh no, 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 no. Like that was there. Our people like encountered it, found it and built on top of it or built onto it or expanded it. I mean, that's that, that's what we're working with here, correct? Well, the fun thing is that uh, the more I go to Machu Picchu, 
the more I have the, the guides from Cusco who guide the tourists around the site come up to me and say, wow, I saw your YouTube videos. I, I wasn't taught this in school. This is amazing. Awesome. So again, they, they've been programmed in university to follow Western archaeology 100%. And when they get a wake-up call, like watching a bit of my video showing the difference between the megalithic core of Machu Picchu and then the rest of it, which was all made by the Inca, the megalithic core is only about 5%, but it's right in the epicenter. And that's you know that shows you the logic that they found that and they were awe-inspired and then they decided to build a major center there. And the difference in technology is night and day. You have make giant megalithic blocks, and then you have uh, broken up stone with uh, with clay mortar. That being the Inca work. Because your work in ancient technology space is so vast, I feel like we should, you know, probably have an episode just dedicated to that topic. But, you know, thinking about your entire career, what are maybe one or two examples of a lost technology that you feel? is some, you know, some kind of irrefutable proof of technological advancements of the ancients that don't exist today. Well, one of my favorite places, and we're, we're going back there in, uh, I think, about 10 days, is Puma Punku in Bolivia, oh, which shit. is about seven miles south of, uh, of Lake Titicaca. And um, I've been there, I think, 60 times now. And 60 every, every time, yeah, every time I, I learn something. And there again, you can definitely see that there was an ancient cataclysm that occurred. The site was almost completely, if not 100% buried by a giant uh, wave of, or wall of mud that came from Lake Titicaca. Uh, the lake level 12,000 years ago was 100 feet higher. So at uh, 12,000 years ago, Lake Titicaca, uh, Pumapunku was, was right at the shoreline. Uh, we also have evidence at uh, Tiwanaku, which is next door, they're basically the same site that um, at a period in the distant past, again, 12,000 plus years ago, that parts of it were underwater because we see that from the water e erosion on the lower surfaces. So that, uh, and also we we found no tool marks whatsoever at Pumapunku. It's like you don't, you, you don't see saw marks, you don't see drill holes, you don't see sanding marks, nothing. That's why people say, it looks like it's poured concrete because that's how perfect the finish is. Right. It looks like fabrication work, right? I mean, it's like they were they were like a, it was an assembly line at play there. Uh, in a way, but the the major thing again, when you go to a, a place so many times, uh, the focus that you're looking at becomes more more uh, more and more narrow because you know you see the general thing and then you just go, oh, here are the H blocks. They're interesting. But then you take out a, a tape measure and then you start measuring uh, the H-blocks. And each H-block is, is a different shape and size. And so that uh, negates the idea that they it was a, a place where they were, you know, like had a mold or something or a form. And they were just making these H-blocks as an assembly line. Each one's different. It has its own specific character. And that's what makes it so mysterious. It's just mind-bending, isn't it? I mean, it's just... yeah. That's one site that I've I've always been drawn to, and I've always just wanted to know, like, okay, what what's if if you could just be a fly on the wall back during its construction or during its heyday, like, wouldn't wouldn't that just be an incredible experience? Well, it it would be. It's it's pro it's possibly the most surreal site in the world. I mean, um, there's nothing like it anywhere else that I've been able to see on Earth. Whoever built that simply built that there, and that was it. It's different from 
the relatively nearby megalithic sites around Cusco, Peru, because again, you have the difference between the polygonal organic shapes around Cusco and then these almost, if not perfectly straight lines at Puma Punku. Just, you know, surreal. So while we're down in South America, I got to ask you, there's a site in like on the, the Cambodian uh, Vietnamese border. It's a cam cam site. And I be, I, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, believe, I believe it's uh, Priya Vahir. And this site, ancient megalithic site, only recently opened up to, to the public and tourists and whatnot just because of all of the, you know, economic turmoil and whatnot that was happening in that region. And when you look at this site and you compare it to sites like Sacsayhuaman and Machu Picchu, it's eerie, right? You can look at the, there's there's a, a wall with the three windows at Priya Vihar, and then there's also the wall with three windows at Machu Picchu. <clears throat> and when you look at those pictures side by side, they are eerily similar. Have you spent much time de like digging into that? Like, I mean, it, it feels like there is almost a, a global phenomenon as it relates to megalithic construction, almost like they were all kind of pulling from the same source material. Um, I, I just want to get your take on, I mean, because you've been to a hundred countries, you've spent so much time boots on the ground, you know, looking at investigating, touching the, all of these things. What, what do you think we're working with here on, on a global scale, Brian? Um, I'm not sure that we're going to discover too many more, um, re like really impressive megalithic sites. I think, I think most have been discovered except those that could be, uh, you know, on the continental shelves. Of, of the of the oceans sure um, but you you definitely see in a number of different locations stuff that could not have been done by the culture that is attributed to it like in Japan you have the the um, Imperial Palace in Tokyo and also in another construction in Kyoto the city of Kyoto where you again like uh, you know 500 ton blocks fitting together almost perfectly and and then on top of it much cruder workmanship and it's right. obviously these obviously these places were discovered and made by i think at least three or four or more ancient cultures that may or may not have been in contact with with one another but uh you know the, the more you know other sites like petra in jordan there's no way that that was done by the so-called nabataean culture that is attributed to them because petra is seven miles long and the amount of work uh, done sculpting the bedrock to create Petra is just out of this world. There's one chamber you can walk into that's 300,000 cubic feet in size. Whoa. And that could not have been done with, you know, guys with hand tools. It's just no way. Uh, we also saw evidence of places like Petra. More and more of what I'm focusing on now are signs of this ancient cataclysm because according to Robert Schock, who I, I partially, you know, I, I agree with his belief in plasma outbursts uh, from the sun being yeah. a cycle of every 13,000 years. And we saw definite evidence at Petra that there was scorching of the sandstone on the western surfaces. I happened to be there with a geologist from Canada, and she agreed. Uh, the same at Karnak in, uh, in Egypt. You see the strange scorching of the stone, uh, that there's no way that could have been done by local fire. It had to be a pulse of energy from from somewhere. Also, wow. Karnak, Karnak is 23 degrees off the cardinal points of north, south, east, and west. So that um, suggests that the uh, axis of the Earth also changed 
around 12,000 years ago as well. So, you know, the, the more you go, the more you're able to add pieces to the puzzle. Sure. But it's a, you know, it's an ongoing process. That's incredible. That is so cool that you get to just like dig in and ask those questions, but then also go see the stuff and, and, you know, investigate it for yourself. It's so incredible. So Brian, what else are you currently working on? You know, how can people find out what you're doing online? Okay. Well, my main, uh, my website is hiddenincatours.com and, uh, 95% of the information there is free. Uh, there's a link to my YouTube channel, which is there too. I've got, I think 1,270 videos on my YouTube channel so far. Um, and I'm on I'm on Facebook, but I you know I, I don't find Facebook very useful anymore. Um, sure. And coming up, we have, we're actually starting a tour in three days. We're doing Nazca and Paracas, and then immediately after that, we're going up to Cusco, and we're going to be exploring the megalithic sites and elongated skulls in the the Cusco and Sacred Valley areas in Machu Picchu, and also going to Tiwanaku and Pumapunku in Bolivia. Then in um, March. We're going to do our eighth annual tour of Egypt. And right after that, we're going to, I'll be going to Israel for the first time because there's evidence in, in a tunnel under the Western Wall that there are at least, there's at least one 500 ton block of stone, which again can't be attributed to any culture we know of. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, I'm, I've got contact in the desert at Indian Wells, California, which is a, three-day uh, conference of all sorts of different subjects, UFOs, Los Angeles High Technology, etc. And then June, August, and November of next year, we have uh, our three major tour annual tours of Peru. That is one hell of a calendar. Um, do you ever sleep? <laughs> Actually, I'm taking more and more time off now, which is, which is great. It's good to, you know, I've, I've done, I think I've done the bulk of, of the exploring I have to do. Now it's a question more going back to these sites and that the main function of the tour is to take people with us to physically see the stuff in person everyone's always blown away by the difference in what they've seen in pictures as compared to walking through the location for sure pointing out the, the difference between the cultures we know of and what they were capable of and the megalithic work that there's no way that was done by any ancient culture that we know of so far yeah and i'm sure it's such an incredible experience too right it's like when when you reinforce what you've spent years you know learning and knowledge you've been working to acquire when you when you when you transfer that to another human being it reinforces it at least it has in my experience and so i'm sure when you're walking people through these sites that's got to be an amazing experience and i'm sure every time you go back like you said you're just you're just seeing other pieces of the puzzle and you're probably able to like get all of these pieces of red yarn on the wall to start connecting much more efficiently, right? Yeah, no, that's that's very true. And again, the good thing about social media is that you're able to get to a much wider audi audience than would be possible before. And uh, you know, people love to see video of of this stuff, and that's why I keep doing the the videos about it. And um, yeah, it's a it's a life lifelong passion. For sure. Well, maybe one of these days, CK and I need to uh, come out and do one of these trips with you, and uh, we, I think that'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> that sounds great. I'll apologize in advance for all of our questions, though. Man, there's going to be a lot of them. 
That's okay. <laughs> well, listen, Brian, we really appreciate you making time for us today. We know that you are such a busy guy, and we, we, we really appreciate and respect the hell out of you for carving an hour for us uh, and for our audience. So um, thank you so much for, for jumping on the horn with us, Brian. Brian, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Oh, absolutely a pleasure. I look, to next, look forward to next time. Same. You be well. Thank you. Bye now. All right. Well, uh, not only am I stoked that we can check that box as far as like had Brian Forrester on the show, but also really pumped that he said he'd be willing to come back on the show and talk to us again, which is really cool. And I think just like, you know, seeing this pattern over time, talking about like different types of humans, things that preceded humans, things that may indicate humans are not exactly what they seem. And thinking about finding 300 of these skulls, 3000 years old, mm -hmm. kind of changes a bunch of timelines straight up. Like really interesting, I think, look into, hey, maybe there was something else going on. Why were we so different then? Yeah. And why do we look this way and act this way now? What happened? I, I want to know what would happen if we like locked him, Dr. Brian Keating, and then other you know researchers like Andrew Collins, Graham Hancock, and then an equal amount of uh, you know academic thinkers. Uh, in a room, maybe maybe in Southern California, so they have nice weather, sunshine, all the things, for like a week. And we provide food, water, sustenance, all the things. Uh, and we're just like, okay, go solve the problems. Bathroom breaks are at these times. Do they fight each other? And like, does the world, does the portal open maybe? Or do they like come out and be like, all right, guys, we figured it out? No clue. Uh, and I, I think more so than anything, that's one of the cool things about getting to do this show. Mm -hmm. It's having people throw some things out and being like, I... I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. Hmm. And we found these in 2014, but something's weird. Yeah. Doesn't, this looks different. We're going to find out why. Speaking of finding out why, uh, next week's episode, man, this was a name that was not really uh, one that uh, was like on my radar much, but uh -oh. I am super excited for this conversation after digging into uh, her background. Mary Rodwell, dude, coming on the show. Um, she's currently a counselor and a, a clinical hypnotherapist. She's also a former nurse and midwife, but her new book, uh, the, the new human awakening to our cosmic heritage as uh -oh. I've been leafing through that. Ready to get wild. Yeah, I mean, it's had some, uh, pretty cool content kind of creeping off the page to me. I'm excited to pick her brain as I know you are as well. Talking about DNA, like all sorts of like really, really experiences cool with non-human intelligences. Mm -hmm. You guys know we like to get a little out there on the show, and this conversation could be really fun. Yeah, this is one that uh, I'm stoked for, and if you are not currently stoked for it, I'm going to want you to get stoked, get guys. Stoked, Come on. Right? Come on. Throw some confetti around. I don't know. I know you're still picking up little pieces of the, your sensibility about people without elongated skulls right, right now, but really, don't miss out. Mary we all Rodwell. floss the same, regardless of the size of our skull, and that's what I need you to do is pause this, stand up, floss, because that's going to get your blood flowing, and then you're going to be pumped for Mary Rodwell, and you're going to be so pumped that if you haven't subscribed to the show or uh -oh. been a Patreon supporter, you're going to be like, I should subscribe, like, right now. damn, I'm going to subscribe twice. check that out. Babe, give me your phone so I can uh, let me subscribe over there, too. It's fine. She's it's like, totally no, fine. that's cool. I'm already subscribed. Catch up, noob. <laughs> Man, that's a cool dynamic in that relationship. But for real, really hope nobody on this podcast is affected by COVID-19 or any of the other glory that's uh, going out there right now and that we all make it uh, between this episode and next. Heart goes out to anybody dealing with that right now worldwide. Mm -hmm. Some scary stuff. Yep. Also, get your flu shot, guys. Yeah, flu shots are important. So, the Modelo virus. Get the Tecate yeah. virus all locked up. 
I feel weird even making jokes about this, but seriously, guys, uh, flu kills like 60,000 people a year as well. Don't be stubborn like the dad. They won't go. Just get out there. uh, Be safe out there this winter. Spring is right around the corner. Wash them hands too, right? Those are, that's important. And it's, you know, I don't care if it's like, you know, cold somewhere that you're at or 65 degrees if you're in Antarctica or something, Mm -hmm. but spring is right around the corner. We'll get through this together. But yeah. Tune in next week. Mary Rodwell. It's going to be an awesome conversation. Indeed. So, until next time, I'm Andrew. And I'm CK. And we challenge you to question everything. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.